Now then, let's turn uh, for our text to that uh, second reading that we had in the prophecy of Joel and uh, chapter 2. And uh, the last verse of the chapter. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. So it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, as I said, I'd like us to take just one more look uh, with God's help at this prophecy, a very uh, important and relevant prophecy for our own situation. Now, as we saw in the morning, uh, Joel tells the people from God that if they truly repent, there will be an immediate blessing from God. But as well as that, the prophet is moved by the Spirit to see a future blessing. And uh, as it turns out, this is a blessing very far in the future from Joel's standpoint. In fact, it's a blessing which will come in the last days. Joel says in verse 28 that it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour my Spirit on all flesh. When Peter quotes the text in the New Testament, he says that it shall come to pass in the last days that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. So Peter is not uh, translating there, he is interpreting. He is telling us that in his days, the last days have begun. So this future blessing then that Joel sees long ago is a blessing coming in the last days when the Spirit of God is poured out in quite a unique way upon all flesh. And as we saw in the morning, that was fulfilled at Pentecost, just 50 days after the crucifixion of Christ, when the exalted Lord and Saviour sent the Holy Spirit from heaven onto the earth to inaugurate the last days, the days, of course, in which we are now living. Peter lived in them. Paul lived in them. We live in them too. It is the age of the Spirit, or perhaps we could even call it the age of the gospel. Now, we saw too that when the Spirit arrives, he arrives with signs and wonders, as well as with converting power. Now, the converting power is the important power and the power that remains, but he also brought signs and wonders. But the text makes clear that his power will continue on earth until the great day of the Lord. And that day of the Lord is the day of Christ's return. And that day is preceded by signs as well. You'll remember in verses 30 and 31, God said, that before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord, he will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke, with the sun turned into darkness and the moon into blood. So signs 
at the coming of the Spirit, beginning the last days, and signs at the second coming of Christ, closing the last days. Now, all that we looked at in some detail this morning. But Joel has more to say on these things. And he especially has more to say regarding the events that have to happen before the great day of the Lord comes. And what he says uh, doesn't just concern ourselves as uh, individuals and congregations and people. It concerns the Jewish nation. And it also concerns the Gentile nations. In many respects, he is speaking about the world, inclusive of you and me. Now, let's first of all begin with the Jewish people. And Joel says a few things regarding them. The first thing he says is that the Jewish people will return to their ancient land. Now, this is a land that God gave them a long, long time ago. They would forfeit their right to stay in it if they forsook the Lord. But the land would nonetheless remain theirs. And we're told that in chapter 3 here, if you look at it in verse 1, we're told that in those days and at that time, I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem. And of course, he brings them back from where they were at the end of verse 2, scattered among the nations with their own land divided up by other people. Now, there's no doubt that what Joel is referring to here is what's referred to very often in the scriptures, not the return from the Babylonian captivity. That was a very limited return from a few places on the earth. But this is what's spoken of by Jeremiah, by Zechariah, by Ezekiel, as well as by Joel here. This is a full-scale return from the many nations of the earth among whom the Jewish people will have been scattered. We read about it. I Don't need to go into it in too much detail. We read a crystal clear passage in Ezekiel 37 from verse 15 following us, following where God speaks of gathering, regathering his people from all the nations where they have been scattered. Now, this is spoken of so often really in the Bible that for myself, in all honesty, it's very difficult to deny the special significance of the return of the Jewish people to Israel in 1948. It's interesting that when you read a lot of commentaries on certain passages in the scripture, there are people who foresee this return. And they say that it cannot be too far away. These are people who are writing at the close of the 19th century. And of course, they were proved right. Now, there are plenty interpreters of the word of God who will say that there's no real significance attached to the return of this people and the reformation or the reformation of the nation of Israel. But I don't see how you can really say that with a Bible in your hand, an open Bible. I think it must take a strange kind of blindness 
in order to deny a special significance to the return of the Jewish people to their ancient land and the reconstitution of the nation of Israel. Well, here you have that prophesied, the day coming when he returns the captives of Judah and Jerusalem who have been scattered among the nations and their land divided up. So there will be a return of the Jews to their land. And we've seen that. We're seeing it. It's still progressing. The second thing that he says concerning the Jews is that they will return to their God. They will return to their God. It's interesting here when I was reading, I noticed that the Lord says of them when he brings them back that they shall be his people. In other words, there's a sense in which they have forfeited that. Not absolutely so, because there is a clear sense in which the people of Abraham have remained the people of God. Paul clearly teaches that in the letter to the Romans. But when they return to their land, God says that they shall be his people. So it's not just a return to the land that matters, but a return to their God who has not yet cast them off. And he never will. As Paul says to the Romans, the calling of God is without repentance. Whenever God elects, he does not reverse that process. As Ezekiel said, when they return to their land this time, they shall be one people. Not two peoples, but one. And you'll notice that he specifies that they shall have one king, David. Now, obviously, it's not a reference to the King David, whom we knew so well in the Old Testament. As Peter said of him, he is dead and his grave remains with us to this day. But David's name here is symbolic. His name means beloved. And of course, in his whole life and character and work, he prefigured the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the true beloved of God, the great David. So this David shall be the king of this reconstituted nation and this reconstituted people. What that means very simply is that once they have been gathered together in the land, one day they shall look upon him whom they have pierced and they shall mourn for him with the intensity of mourning that one has in mourning for an only child. In other words, a bitter, a bittersweet repentance will spread throughout the land. Because as Ezekiel says, or as God says through Ezekiel, that in those days God will sprinkle clean water upon them and he will cleanse them. He will cleanse them. And that is why God acts so specially on their behalf here. <clears throat> We're told when the nations rise up against them that in chapter 3, verse 16, God acts on their behalf. The Lord also will roar from Zion. He will utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth will shake when he does so. But the Lord will be a shelter for his people. And he will be the strength of the children of Israel. And so you shall know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. And the wonderful thing, too, is in, in this passage here that we have an assurance that once, 
once they return to the promised land in the way in which they have, and once they return to God, they will no longer turn back and apostatize. They will not fall away from their profession of the Lord Jesus Christ. Other nations might. They will not. They will remain a blessed people. Israel, a blessed nation, and Jerusalem, a blessed capital city, until the end of the world. And uh, we have that really at the close of chapter 3. In verse 18, it shall come to pass in that day, that's the day when God uh, calls and delivers his people. In that day, the mountains shall drip with new wine. The hills shall flow with milk. And all the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water. A fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Acacias. Now, very different from for another two countries here because Egypt shall be a desolation. Edom a desolate wilderness because of violence against the people of Judah, for they have shed innocent blood in their land. But, here we have it, Judah shall abide forever, and Jerusalem from generation to generation, for I will acquit them of the guilt of bloodshed, whom I had not acquitted, for the Lord dwells in Zion. And of course, All that is confirmed to us by the Lord Jesus himself, who tells uh, Jerusalem as a city uh, that they will not see him again until he comes a second time, when they will say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. A converted city in a converted nation. So once God restores them and converts them, they will never fall away again. Now, that's a wonderful thing when we consider the risings and the falls of this ancient people down through the ages. Other peoples have come and gone, uh, but this people are here and they remain, and for whatever reason, they are returning to the land. And uh, they are doing so because God is behind it. And they will prosper. They will prosper. I'll come to that a little later. But this uh, rise of the Jewish nation and the conversion of the Jewish nation isn't plain sailing all along. In fact, it's very clear that there are times of threat and danger. And that's when Joel makes a special reference here to the Gentile nations. You'll notice that there's as much about them. In fact, there's even more about them in chapter 3 than there is about the Jewish people and the Jewish nation. As far as the Gentile nations are concerned, Joel tells us that God is going to deal with them too, especially for their treatment of the Jewish people down through the ages. Now, you'll notice that's not their only guilt, but it's a large part of their guilt. We saw that, um, yes, in verse 1 of chapter 3, When I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. See that later. And I will enter into judgment with them there. Why? On account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered. So the nations are responsible. The nations collectively are responsible for what has happened to the Jewish people down through the years. 
Isn't that a sobering thought for all of us? So it's on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, they have also divided up my land and treated the people abominably. In verse 3, we're told that they cast lots for my people. So cheap they would sell a boy as a payment for a prostitute and sell a girl just for a drink of wine so that they could drink. And most of us know with shame how the nations have dealt with this people down through the years. And it's not over. And our own country has its own share of guilt. Um, I'm quite sure it's comfortable to think of the fact that the Balfour Declaration, which precipitated the uh, reconstitution of Israel, that declaration was made in 1917. I'm quite sure we are thankful for that, but we shouldn't forget how Britain sometimes dealt with the Jewish people when they were seeking uh, entrance into the country and an escape from Germany. Many of them were denied it. And what's more, when many of them tried to get into Palestine at that time, which was under British rule, again it was denied them. The British didn't want to aggravate the Arab presence in the area, and so they denied entrance to the Jews into Palestinian, um, which was under the British mandate at the time. We have things for which we are guilty too. We are things for which we carry guilt. But despite this opposition, they will return to the land and they will prosper. Now, the thing is that these nations are resenting it. Uh, we're told that all the nations are going to be judged, but especially the surrounding nations of verse 12. You'll notice that there's a special emphasis on them. Let the nations be wakened, that's chapter 3, verse 12, and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. But in the sickle, that's the sickle of judgment, because the harvest is ripe. That's the harvest of sin. Um, it's time to cut it down. Come, he says, go down, for the winepress is full. The vats are overflowing because of the greatness of their wickedness. Now, the surrounding nations, you, you'll know, most of you will surely anyway, that the nations that particularly surround Israel are the Arabic nations, which are now Muslim. And many of them have ingrained in their very existence the goal of obliterating Israel off the map. And it is something that they have often expressed throughout history, especially since 1948, that their goal is the destruction of Israel as a nation. Now, these nations particularly will gather against Israel, but so will other nations that are helping them, and they will assemble in the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, nobody knows where the valley of Jehoshaphat is. And I think the reason for that, quite simply, is because there is no such place as the valley of Jehoshaphat as such. Because I don't think Jehoshaphat here is actually a place name. I think it is a descriptive name that God is giving to the valley where the nations gather. Because Jehoshaphat means the judgment of God. I know it was the name of a king in the Old Testament. Uh, God judges. But here it's given as a name to the area, obviously near Jerusalem, where these hostile nations gather. 
hostile armies. And as these nations gather, their purpose in gathering is very different from God's purpose in allowing them to gather. And that shouldn't surprise us. Man proposes, God disposes. Something happens and people have a reason for it happening, but God has his own reason for it happening, his own reason for allowing it. Now, their purpose in gathering in this valley outside or somewhere near Jerusalem, their purpose is to destroy it. Verse 9, proclaim this among the nations, prepare for war, wake up the mighty men in the nations, let the men of war draw near, let them come up, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Now the swords and the spears here are not to be taken literally, they are symbolic of weapons. Let the weak say, I am strong, assemble and come you nations and gather all around because your mighty wants to go down there, O Lord. Now, these nations are gathering together for war, to destroy this nation and to destroy the Jewish people. And of course, from this passage here, it's quite clear that God is allowing it. God is telling Joel to proclaim it. It's not going to happen outside of God's providence. Nothing ever does. In fact, in verse 2 of chapter 3, we're told that it's actually God who's gathering them. Look again at that verse, chapter 3, verse 2. I will, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all the nations. Now here, there's a time lag. I will gather all the nations and I'll bring them down to the valley of judgment and I will enter into judgment with them there. It's God's sovereign purpose to allow it. But that's because God's purpose is not to defeat Israel. It's not to, not to wipe Israel off the map. It's not to destroy or to liquidate the Jewish people as some, as some have sought to do in an anti-Christian manner down through the years. In fact, God's purpose in allowing the nations to gather is to judge the nations themselves in verse 2. I will bring them down. I will gather the nations and I will bring them to the valley of judgment, and I will enter into judgment with them there. And what's more, the crowds that gather for war there, God will actually find some way, as only he can, of making known to them there what his judgment is. I don't know if it's through Israel fighting, or does he just incapacitate them? Does he set them at loggerheads against each other? We're just like the Moabite coalition did actually in the days of Jehoshaphat um, when uh, they, they gathered together as a coalition but they ended up fighting amongst themselves. One way or another, the Lord draws near to them in this valley. If you move forward to verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. Now, I heard that text years and years ago print, um, preached on. Uh, well, it was taken right out of context and it was preached on as, a, as an evangelical sermon. And uh, you can understand that, that there are multitudes in a valley of decision, uh, with a decision to make. And that's true enough insofar as it goes, but it's actually not the meaning of the text. The multitudes here are not the ones actually making the decision here. It's God who's making the decision. 
The multitudes are in the valley of God's decision because the day of the Lord is near in this valley of decision. The God who is entering into judgment with the nations is going to pronounce his verdict against the nations. He's going to make clear to them that he is protecting and guarding his people Israel and that his anger is with those who are provoking Israel. And and that's why in verse 15 we have again the judgment announced. The day of the Lord is near, we're told, in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon will grow dark. Now here's God's intervention again. There will doubtless be signs. The stars will diminish their brightness. What happens this time? The Lord will roar from Zion. He will utter his voice from Jerusalem so that the heavens and the earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people because that's who they are now. They have again become his people and he will be the strength of the children of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy and no stranger shall ever divide her land again as our nation once did, owning that land and dividing it up. God took it off us and he's given it back to them. Now, the Lord's had his protection uh, over Israel, even when they were not his people in this sense. Uh, Some of you are old enough to remember in 1967, when the nations surrounding Israel uh, fought against Israel, suddenly Egypt, Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, and to some extent Iraq. And they attacked Israel, and amazingly and unexpectedly, although Israel were vastly outnumbered, um, in six days they defeated them. Um, So God's hand has been upon that nation. A tiny little spot there. I mean, look at it on the map and look at the nations that surround it. Just do that. Do it afterwards. Look at that spot on the map and look at the nations that surround it. And the Lord has remarkably preserved that nation. But what Joel is speaking of here is much greater. It's a preservation and an intervention that doesn't just follow a return to the land, but it follows their conversion to the Lord. Their conversion to the Lord. Friends, uh, To know what the time is in in world events or in the unfolding of God's purpose, I, I wouldn't tell you to look at the sun and the moon and the stars, but I would tell you to keep your eye on Israel. Keep your eye on her government. Keep your eye on Jerusalem as a capital city. And keep your eye on the prosperity of the gospel in Israel because it doesn't make the news that the gospel is spreading in Israel. And that should be no surprise. The return to the land will be coupled with the return to the Lord. Now, again, like the prophet, we see these two hills in the distance. Maybe we would expect the conversion of Israel in 1948. No. But will it not happen soon? Um, And uh, I suppose our day of shame will come too. Because when God returns to his people, it's the end of the time of the Gentiles. But our day of shame won't last. Because Israel will play her part then in bringing us back to the Lord. Now, let's just leave 
the Jewish nation and Jerusalem and the Gentile nations there. And let's go back to something more urgent immediately for you and for me, and that is you and me. That takes us to the words of our text in verse 32. And it shall come to pass. When? Well, you'll remember from the morning that in the verses immediately preceding this, that's in chapter 2, verses 28 to 31, you remember we had the two time markers there. We have the beginning of the last days and the end of the last days. Now, verse 32 tells us that during that long era, what we have is a gospel era. It shall come to pass through that whole period of thousands of years that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved or shall escape. And the word <clears throat> escape is chosen there, I think, because the idea is that God will come to judge the earth, but there will be a special deliverance um, for those who are his people. And, and that deliverance will be established in Jerusalem itself, for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be a deliverance, a way of escape. Now, what's that a reference to? Well, undoubtedly, it's a reference to the way of escape that God provided in Christ Jesus. There is no other way of escape. If we live in gospel days, that's our way of escape. We live in a world that is destined to come under the wrath of God. At some point it will. His pent-up fury will be outpoured upon it as certainly as the Spirit of the Lord was poured out upon it. But there's a way of escape, and the Lord has made it. And it is in the cross. The way of deliverance among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Even when the Jewish people rejected God, they didn't all reject him. Who believed in him? Who were the apostles? Were they not Jews? Were they not a remnant of Jews? Who was converted when the 3,000 were converted on the day of Pentecost? Was it not Jewish people who were converted? Who constituted the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ's church? Was it not the Jewish people who constituted it? Did Paul not give the directive that the gospel was to be preached to the Jew first and then to the Gentile? Yes, it's in Jerusalem that God appointed the way of escape. There, on the cross, where his only begotten son was given up for sinners, so that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, and far from coming under a curse, they will come under a blessing. <clears throat> he came under a curse. He came under a curse. But in so doing, he opened up a way so that we could come under God's blessing. And whoever calls upon the name of that Lord will be saved. Now, <clears throat> it's interesting when Peter Pardon me, my throat is just <clears throat> giving way a little bit. If you could just hold on. Now, when Peter is expounding these matters on the day of Pentecost, and when he goes back to Joel's prophecy, you know, when he speaks about calling upon the name of the Lord, he relates it to Christ. You'll remember that from the morning. Peter is preaching, and he says that this outpouring of the Spirit, he says, is the sign 
that the Jesus whom you crucified has now become both Lord and Christ. In what sense has he become Lord? Well, he immediately tells us in what sense, because he quotes, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In other words, it is a cry, it is a call, that the Lord Jesus would rescue you and deliver you. And that's the message, essentially, for yourself and for me too tonight. That if we call upon that name in our need, we shall be saved. Um, So in essence, when we put it together, I'll apply this in a moment a bit more clearly, but when we put the whole thing together, what we're essentially being told in all these verses is this, that between Pentecost 2,000 years ago and the day of the Lord which is to come, God will deal in a special way with both Jews and Gentiles. The Jewish people will be restored to their land and they will be converted. The Gentile nations, many of them, and especially those which surround the Jewish people, will be aggressive against her, but God will put that aggression to shame and God will increase the prosperity and blessing of the Jewish people. And that whole gospel era is a long day of grace and the call for all of us is to make sure that we call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and so we shall be saved. Now, With that explanation, and I know it's a long one, but we need to understand it. Let's say just a few things about this day in which we live, the gospel day or the day of the spirit. I just want to say four brief things about it. And uh, they will will be brief, but I hope they will give us cause to think and to reflect and indeed to pray. The first thing we can say about the day in which we live, the day of the spirit, is that it's a day of opportunity. The day. Of opportunity. Never has the gospel been so clear. Never has the gospel been so plentiful. We don't have to look far for it. We don't have to look far to hear it. Now is the acceptable time, or the time for acceptance, we could say. Now is the time for acceptance. Now is the day of salvation. And um, like every opportunity, uh, this one too will pass. But we've got to realize that there is a a nowness to this, uh, an urgency to it. We're in the last days. They've stretched out so long. For us individually, it's short, is it not? But these last days are the last days in which to be reconciled to God and a day of special opportunity, fullness of proclamation, fullness of power, fullness of clarity, a rich, full, open Bible, and multitudes of preachers. Now, there may be many things wrong in the land, but who can deny that these things are not available? You merely have to touch a button and you can access some of the most remarkable preachers of God's word for hundreds of years. Is that not a day of opportunity? Second, it's a day of preparation. A day of preparation for a godly life. Um, these last days as I said, are passing. And Paul said the same thing. He says that we should know the time in which we live. Because he says, 
It's high time to awaken out of, out of sleep, he says, for now is our salvation nearer than when we first believed. You'll notice how conscious he is of the relentless forward march of time. How relentlessly all of ourselves are making our way to the judgment seat of Christ. The day is far spent. Can we say the last days are far spent? And uh, the, the day is at hand, sorry. The night is far spent and the day is at hand. Let us cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. That's our preparation. In, in light of the urgency of the times in which we live, God is calling us to make sure that we prepare. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as the children of the day not in revelry, parties, not in drunkenness, not in lewdness, that's sexual immorality and lust. And isn't that how the world walks today? Not in strife and envy either, but he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's your preparation. Knowing the time, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. So the day in which we live is a day of unique opportunity. It's also a day for special preparation, holiness, for the coming of the Lord. The third thing about the day is that it's a day for consecration. In other words, not just a day for a godly life, but for a spirit-filled life. Now, I don't want to make too much of a distinction between these two things. Uh, they are distinguishable, but I don't want to make too much of a distinction between them. I, I wouldn't want to think of a godly life without a spirit-filled life or a spirit-filled life without a godly life. But the, it deserves a special consideration. Let this day be a day that characterizes, um, that is characterized by a spirit-filled people. Making sure that you and that I that we're all filled with the Holy Spirit of God. How, put it this way for a second, how incongruous would it be if the day of outpouring, if the era of the Spirit was characterized by Christians running on empty, Christians who are not filled with the Holy Spirit of God, how incongruous a thing that would be. But is it possible that that is true of you? Is it possible that, that you are running on empty or next to empty and that, that you are not filled? Does Paul not tell us in the letter to the Ephesians to make sure, to make sure that we ourselves are being filled with the Spirit? Be filled with the Holy Spirit of God or keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. That's an that's an interesting way of putting it. I mean, that's that's what the Greek is really saying. Keep on being filled. The implication there, perhaps, is that you may need refilling. And uh, of course, it's possible that the Spirit departs from you for a season, as He left Samson. Uh, you can grieve the Spirit. We're told that in the New Testament. We're also told that we can quench the Spirit, and it's always sin that grieves Him. 
It's sin that quenches his influence and power in our lives. Maybe just even the sin of neglecting him. So keep on being filled, because being filled is your default condition as a Christian. Now, is that true of yourself? Can, can you say that your default condition is being full of the Spirit of God? Or maybe not, friend. Maybe it was, but somehow now, is it the case that it's not? Well, that's not a situation without remedy. What do you do? Ask. Ask. Was it not in connection with the gift of the Holy Spirit that Jesus said, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. If God, if we give good gifts to our own children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them? Ask him. Ask him for a refilling. And make sure in your asking that you turn away from some special thing that might be hindering his coming. The wonderful thing is that when he comes, you discover all the things that you used to have when you were full. Things that gladdened your own heart, like love and joy and peace. And also the other things that did other people so much good, like long-suffering and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and your self-control. As Paul says, if we live in the Spirit, and if we are in the age of the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. Let us walk in the Spirit. So it's a day of opportunity. It's a day of preparation. It's a day of consecration. And uh, last of all, it's a day of warning. The psalmist says in Psalm 95, and uh, we're going to to sing this in a moment, that he lays emphasis on the day of opportunity, which he calls today. The writer to the Hebrews picks up on it as well, that that the day we're living in is called today. In uh, midway through verse 7 of Psalm 95, the writer says this, Today, If you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As happened in the rebellion, he says, in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work. For 40 years I was grieved with that generation. And I said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. If it is a day of opportunity and preparation and consecration, it must be a day of warning too. Because what on earth will happen if you don't seize the opportunity, if you don't prepare and if you don't consecrate? You will harden your heart. While it is called today, don't harden your hearts and don't shut the door upon yourselves. God has appointed salvation in Jerusalem. From salvation, the good news has gone out to the ends of the earth and how privileged you are to hear it. Even you tonight, all of us as we gather around our computers and our iPads or whatever we have, 
how privileged we are to hear the word of God preached. But how terrible if all we let it do is harden our hearts. The remedy, call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. What a promise. It's not difficult to call, is it? Call as a needy people. Just call as sinners. Call asking for forgiveness. Call asking for deliverance and you will be saved. I was thinking earlier just in the house and I'll close with this. I was thinking for another reason of the bronze serpent that was set up in the wilderness. And uh, the people were sick because they had been bitten by serpents. And God told Moses to make a bronze serpent and to lift it up on a pole in the midst of the camp. Now, the, the symbolism there I'll just have to leave for the moment, but except for the obvious part of it, they were told to look upon the serpent, and in looking they would be saved. Now, <clears throat> the look was obviously a look of faith. It's a look of belief, a look of hope, a look of expectation. There were plenty of people who saw that serpent who weren't healed. It wasn't the physical looking that healed them. It was the believing that there was power in it. Believing that God spoke through that provision and that God healed through that provision. That kind of look saved. Now the call here is exactly the same. It's, it's not a prayer. It's not a form of words. It's not a formulaic thing. It's a recognition on your part that you're doomed, that you're lost and that you're perishing. A recognition that a way of salvation has been opened through a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a recognition that if you ask for his mercy and ask for his help, he'll give it you. Not because you deserve it, but because that's who he is. And that's what he does. And with that, you call. Now, if you do that, even rising out of this sermon, I will be happy. And the Lord's people will be happy. And the angels in heaven will be happy. And there will be gladness in the heart of God himself. May the Lord bless our deliberation on his word. Um, let's sing in conclusion the psalm that I was just referring to there, Psalm 95. Page 357. And uh, we're going to be singing to the tune Gainsborough. Now it's awkward to, to join the particular part where we would like to. Let's just step back to verse 6 in the psalm. Now the psalm itself is a call to come into God's presence and to worship him, which we have done today in a, in a different way, but we have done that. Oh, come and let us worship him. Let us bow down with all and on our knees before the Lord, our maker, let us fall, for he is our God. The people we of his own pasture are, and of his hand the sheep. Now, <clears throat> there's where the, the thought finishes. And a new thought begins with the word today. Today, if ye his voice will hear, then harden not your hearts. As in the provocation, as in the desert on the day of the temptation, when me, your fathers, tempted and proved, don't do that, even by resisting the gospel all the time, don't tempt God, and did my working see, 
even for the space of 40 years, this race hath grieved me. How long have, how long have you resisted, God? I hope you feel that maybe time's running out and, you, and you've got to get it looked after. I said this people errs in heart constantly. My ways they do not know, to whom I swear and wrath, that to my rest they should not go. There's uh, six to the end of the psalm, to the praise of God. Now, just before the benediction, please uh, remember, if you can, the uh, fellowship at half past eight, the testimony meeting. Now let's receive the blessing of the Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.